Welcome to the Finding God in the Body podcast. I'm Ben Riggs. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to update my listeners about my book, Finding God in the Body. It comes out on January the 2nd, so this will probably be the last podcast episode before the book is released. But if you pre-order it today, it should arrive in time to help with any spiritual or mindful New Year's resolutions that you might have. Ordering the book is also a great way to support this podcast. You can go to FindingGodInTheBody.com or Amazon and search Finding God in the Body to place your order. I'd also like to encourage listeners to subscribe to the podcast. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about religious fundamentalism. Religious fundamentalism is a topic that I'm profoundly interested in. In my opinion, religious fundamentalism is one of the deepest and most corrosive problems facing American society. And now it's starting to pour out of the religious sphere and into the political arena in unprecedented ways. The white nationalist movement known as the alt-right is a type of political fundamentalism. It seeks to monopolize political power for white Protestants by installing both white and Christian supremacy as core American values. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. David Otto, chair of the Religious Studies Department at Centenary College. Our conversation was recorded on a handheld device, so the production quality is not perfect. But what it lacks in production quality, it more than makes up for with content. It's an enlightening conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So without further ado, I give you the alt-right and religious fundamentalism with Dr. David Otto. Dr. Otto, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So uh, perhaps it's best that we start with a simple question. What is religious fundamentalism in general? And more specifically, what does Christian fundamentalism look like? Religious fundamentalism in general is when a religious group believes its sacred text or text to be inerrant and historically true. That being said, they believe that the worldview that is expressed in those texts is the best and only worldview, and all other worldviews should be rejected. In terms of Christian fundamentalism, it started as a reaction against modernity, in particular evolution and science. And it, it grew from there. Eventually, it became politicized over, over in the 20th century. And uh, today, it is a very prominent force in both American religion and American politics. Can you talk a little bit about how it became politicized? Yeah. By when it starts in the early 20s, it's only a religious movement within Christianity, predominantly Protestantism. As more and more Southerners, in particular, were attracted to this, they wanted their politicians to be able to mouth the words that gave them the idea that they understood the worldview they wanted, which was a fundamentalist worldview. And the more the politicians catered to that, the more they were elected. And by the 1970s, this became a dominant political form of rhetoric. This is when we had the rise of the moral majority. We had fought the rise of Falwell. We have the founding of Liberty University. And we have candidates for especially President of the United States, especially Republicans, who are using this political rhetoric to actually signal to the populace that they understood the fundamentalist worldview, and they wanted it. They were behind it. So political rhetoric was a way of solidifying their base, particularly in the South, and continued because it was successful. Yes. You talk about it emerging in the 1920s. 
And there is this Christian supremacy baked into the idea of Christian fundamentalism. Before the 1920s, was there that Christian supremacist kind of view that, you know, and obviously people don't in common speech call it Christian supremacy. They're thinking more of it in terms of we're a Christian nation, I think is the more common way. Was it always thought of that way or was that something that emerged when fundamentalism? It was something that emerged as part of the rhetoric of American fundamentalism. People knew from the founding of the the country that there was a division of church and state. There was no such thing as a state religion. And in fact, people came here because they wanted to freely express religion or not. And so the founding fathers and people in the 18th century knew that was not true. But by the 19th century, during Reconstruction, this is is where American fundamentalism finds its roots. It's beginning to spin this idea of going back to a more primitive time, a more natural time in the world. And where would you find that? We find it in the Bible. And so people began to understand the Bible in a very literal historical sense. But they ran into opposition with people like Darwin, for instance, and other forms of science that uh, really rejected that worldview as false. And believe it or not, it led to this major conflict between religion and science that only empowered the religious. So let me ask this. The conflict, which is now palpable between religion and science, do you think that spills over into a general conflict between religion from a fundamentalist point of view and education? Sure. And its effect is becoming more and more obvious in American politics as well. There seems to be a direct relationship between not only climate change denial and the conflict between religion and science. I don't necessarily know that most Christians have a theological problem with climate change as much as it is that I think their religion has devalued the wisdom and the knowledge and the epistemology of science to the point where it's just another opinion in a sea of opinions and no more valuable than mine. In fact, if you're coming from a Christian fundamentalist point of view, it would almost seem that not only is your opinion just an opinion, my opinion is divinely inspired and so supreme. Uh, But it also seems that in particularly in the year 2016, that extreme relativism where there are no objective facts, there is no objective truth, everything is just an opinion. It seemed that that spilled over into the fake news cycle and all of that as well. Right. Do you see a relationship between the way that fundamentalism has shaped people's thinking and that detachment from objective facts, or am I reaching? No, no, you're fine. Uh, what The way I talk about it would be that what has happened is American fundamentalists, and to some degree evangelicalism, has embraced an anti-intellectualism to the degree that... Anybody who has an education, at least a higher education, is considered an elitist and not to be trusted. That apparently the purpose of higher education is to move you from that authentic worldview found in the Bible. And so anything that you do as an individual, such as receive higher education, that might lead you to a different worldview would be viewed as anathema. So the office that we're sitting in on the campus that we're at right now would really just be seen as an arm in the left-wing propaganda machine. Oh, sure. There seems to be this trickle-down distrust of anybody who talks above a third-grade level. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, there is a divide. And especially, as you see, as we saw in this 
year's presidential election that how the two candidates behaved on the campaign trail represents a stark division, which is Hillary Clinton was bookish. She was uh, well-informed. She was to very intellectual, whereas Donald Trump was outrageous in his rallies, which attracted thousands of people. They wanted a spectacle. They wanted show. And they were tired of routine conservative thought. And in many ways, that's what is being rejected as well. It's, it's not just being anti-intellectual. It's the rejection of traditional conservatism that inspired a lot of people to vote for Trump, who they believe will issue in an alternative to conservatism. That's an interesting point, and it kind of, you know, because we do need to start sh steering the ship towards the alt-right, which is an important part of the conversation, and I think one thing that helps us make that turn is this year it went from just anti-liberalism to anything establishment, right. which the liberals have long since been considered establishment by people on the right, but this year the likes of Paul Ryan were getting lumped in there with Hillary Clinton. So when we start talking about how Paul Ryan is getting lumped into categories with Hillary Clinton because they're both establishment and neither mm -hmm. one of them are to be trusted, it becomes obvious to me that there's this kind of culture war going on. And from the Christian fundamentalist point of view, there are obvious milestones along that path of the culture war, one of them obviously being abortion and Roe v. Wade. That's a, a rallying cry in every election. But then also following the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage, LGBT rights has become a huge thing nationwide, and one of those points that conservatives were using to rally their base. And, well, and it started to seem to me that there were a lot of people on the far right, particularly the religious right, that saw the traditional conservatism, while they might not be in short supply with their rhetoric, they've been ineffectual in their ability to win that culture war and preserve Christian America and white America. And so it, it seemed that their frustration had more to do with them feeling like they were losing ground. And the likes of Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and, you know, one one that got martyred and along the way was John Boehner. Mm -hmm. the, these people just failed. And Donald Trump came along, and it seemed to me that he positioned himself as a brave and strong and courageous warrior that was willing to do battle in that culture. And it it gave something to the people on the religious right to enter into what's been called the alt-right. That's right. Well, what happened was that Tea Party really didn't have a champion. They had people in Congress, but many people felt that even Tea Party members were being too much part of the establishment. So the alt-right movement uh, arose about four years ago with the help of a man by the name of Richard Spencer, and he began to usher. Now, now, who is Richard Spencer? Richard Spencer is runs a blog, and he is a member of American Policy Institute, which is an institution for his propagation of his view of what a new conservative politics would be. Uh, in fact, he was the person that led a, a rally late November just a few blocks from the White House. And he ended it by raising his hand and saying, Hail Trump, hail oh, victory. The white yes. Rally. Yeah, in D.C. Yeah, okay. Yes. So that's part of what he was doing. 
which is he was he's attempting to wed, and he, he coined the term alt-right because he wants to have an alternative to conservatism that embraces white nationalism and fundamentalist values. The, the white nationalism part, I think, is a, a badge that most people slap onto the alt-right. But the religious crowd, their place in the alt-right is not as obvious. It's, it's not as obvious because it's not as, it's not as prevalent or as vocal because much of the alt-right is internet-based. It's how they communicate. They do Twitter. They do Facebook. They do other forms of social media. That's how they get their ideas out. That's how they share their ideas. So, for instance, that Trump tweets all of the time doesn't surprise anybody from the alt-right because they're all, the young ones at least, this is how they communicate with one another. This is who helped spread the fake news phenomenon that now Facebook is being asked somehow to take care of. I don't know that that's going to happen. I don't know how you do that. But what's being led are these younger males that are very active in the social media of alt-right wedded with the older generation of fundamentalists. And so the wedding takes place when the alt-right needs a religious worldview to wed to its politic. And its politic is basically one of, for white nationalists to have white nation or and or to be a nation without a governing state. So the idea of individual sovereignty becomes a very prominent idea within the alt-right. And that is something that has been supported now quite a bit by Christian fundamentalists. They want this to be a white Christian Protestant nation. And they see the alt-right as an opportunity to bring that about. The alt-right, have they co-opted Christian fundamentalism much like politicians did back in the early 20th century? where they picked up on the rhetoric and used the rhetoric to solidify base, to advance their agenda? Or is there a legitimate religious reasoning within the alt-right? And if so, what would that be? There is a legitimate blending of the two. By the leaders of the alt-right movement, it's important to grab, in particular, the rural base. And while they may not understand what the alt-right is about, they do understand that they have fundamentalist world worldview. They're hypnotized by this personality of Trump who's able to speak in very simple language, but in very coded words that signal that, yes, he understands what they want. They, they want to return to what they think was a time of Eden, a time there were only whites in power, a time there were only white men in power, and a time that when the Bible ruled supreme. And we didn't have to worry about climate change or any other science for that matter. Was it just taken for granted? Did Christians in America not really feel like they were competing with any other religion 150 years ago? And so, so it wasn't even an argument. There was no argument. There was no debate. And once multiculturalism and pluralism started to creep in and they started to be exposed to other religions and other belief systems, they started to see those belief systems take root within particularly urban communities and through immigration. Is that when the religious right started to feel like the culture war had been intensified? They had more skin in the game and more to lose. The whole idea of we're losing our country, we need to take our country back. Because I've, I've spent a while, a few months now, maybe a year, trying to figure out who the hell had their country in the first place. 
what who they're trying to get it back from. And the only thing I've been able to come up with is there are two elements. One to me seems to be George H.W. Bush got 59% of the white vote and trounced his opponent. Mitt Romney got 59% of the white vote and lost. And so there is a demographic shift and they feel like minorities are taking their country from them. But then there is this element, um, and I think it's played up amongst the religious right, but this idea that there is an actual assault on Christianity, and it's coming from various points of view. One is the presence of other religion. And I felt like that got intensified a bit after 9-11 as well. It did. It Um, did. With 9-11 came a new form of American patriotism. So that, that meant it was much more difficult to question the administration. And when you did question administration as a member of the legislature, you often were denounced as somebody who wasn't a true patriot. It got so bad that Bush and his administration was able to convince a nation to go to war with Iraq, who we had no business invading to begin with. And we all see how that turned out. But I think it goes back even farther. I think it goes back to Scopes Monkey Trials in Dayton, Tennessee. There was this clash of worldviews between the worldview of science and Darwinism and the worldview of the fundamentalists. And that's where it starts, I think, in terms of American history. There was feeling of marginalization even then. And it's only increased over time. Yes, with immigration. Yes, with, with multiculturalism. Yes, with political correctness, yes, with the formation of the educated elite, yes, with the rise of minorities, in particular Hispanics and African Americans, that white males, in particular, feel that what they thought was their country, the country of their fathers and grandfathers, the country that they fought for in wars, is no longer their country, or it's being taken away from them by one of these forces, the liberal elite, the Clintons, you name it. When you talk about the political correctness, one of the reasons why I brought up the West's war with radical Islam is that talking point, all the way back to the Republican primaries and before this year, that talking point just hammering Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton about their refusal to use the word radical Islamic terrorism. They always had that cadence to it. The thing that was striking to me about that was it's obviously a strategic thought process is to not have the president of the United States go on camera and broadcast to the world using those words, because that's definitely fodder for that fire. But the religious right took that differently. I don't think they saw that as a strategic move. I hear them literally saying, sometimes to the extreme, that Barack Obama himself, the radical Muslim who's somehow infiltrated the U.S. government and plans to bring it down. But more more frequently, what I hear is that they're so saturated with political correctness, that they can't see the truth of things anymore, and they can't see that we're at war with Islam. You know, George Bush walked the same line. You know, George Bush refused to call it by those words. He he went and famously went into the mosque and talked about how Islam was a religion of peace and all of that. I felt like they started to see, the religious right started to see what they call political correctness as an antipathy or just a complete disinterest in the war against Christianity that they felt like their way of life was literally under attack, and and that political correctness was just a 
had a cold shoulder towards their fears and their anxieties, which is another reason why I think Trump's bravado was so welcomed by them, in spite of the fact, and this is the next point I really want to talk about, in spite of the fact that if you just look on paper at what Christian evangelicals believe and what they value, and then you just watch five minutes of any videotape you can find on Donald Trump, they would seem to be the complete opposite. He's a thrice-married man who's regularly bragged about his uh, philandering. He, he has talked about and treated women in ways that I, I honestly, you know, when the, the famous Access Hollywood tape came out, everybody kept saying that was locker room talk. I could honestly say I didn't have any friends who talked that way. However, you know, much that line was peddled, I didn't know anybody who talked about grabbing and groping women unsolicited. And so a group of people who promote family values and have for decades signed their name on that line, and then suddenly they're hitching their wagon to Donald Trump. My question is, do you think that there is a chauvinism and a misogyny baked into religious fundamentalism that enabled Donald Trump to get a pass on some of that behavior, even though they might have been uncomfortable with his profanity and the vulgarity in which he expressed it, but the the chauvinistic idea itself did not bother them. I would agree to some extent that fundamentalists do have chauvinistic, misogynist tendencies, given their understanding of a little reading of the Bible and a woman's place, which is in the home and not in politics or in, in the public sphere. But I, I would say that probably more than that, that American fundamentalists and evangelical Christians believed that Trump would be the most expedient way to get their goals met. And they were willing to forgive a lot for expediency. And when all the family values people came out for Trump, I don't think that they were necessarily all that comfortable with Trump in terms of behavior and what he had to say and what he's done. But as president, I think they believe that he will give them the kind of nation they, that he promised. And so if that's the case, it's a case for expediency more than anything else. The entire time we've been talking about the evangelical community and Christian fundamentalism and the role that religion has played in the alt-right, we've prefaced that by saying that it is a white, Protestant crowd. I, I feel like Catholicism often does get a pass and excluded from the fundamentalist sphere, perhaps because Catholicism is also responsible for a great many deep and brilliant thinkers. Do you think it's fair to exclude the Catholic Church? Or is it maybe better to talk about it, exclude the church, yes, but not necessarily groups of Catholics that are within the church? Yes, I would do that. Exclude the Catholic Church, but don't exclude the individuals who express a fundamentalist Catholic worldview. Because they're out there. Now, they are fringe. They're not like evangelical Protestants that consist of one out of every four Americans. So when it comes to Roman Catholicism and fundamentalism, you're talking about a very small fringe movement. Whereas when you talk about a particular worldview among evangelical Protestants and fundamentalists, you're talking about a much larger segment of the population. Yeah, and one in four. That's a scary number. I think I'd read 90 million 
and I don't think I, my brain translated that to one in four, but as soon as you hear it as one in four, you start to realize, like, once you, and that's a very well-organized group of people as well. Like, yes. they, they come out on issues, and there's just a couple of them, and if you can hit those issues, then you can really rally that group to, to your support, and obviously Donald Trump was able to do that. Why do you think Donald Trump was able to do that and Ted Cruz was not? Ted Cruz seemed to be the much more likely candidate. If I'm not mistaken, his dad not only is a well-known evangelical minister, but he's involved in Christian politics as well. And so he seemed like the natural heir of the evangelical right support. You would think, but again, Cruz didn't have the touch of political rhetoric and ability to get down with the common folk, the people who are undereducated, the people who live in rural areas. Donald Trump was able to communicate in a way that empowered those people, a way that Cruz could never even begin to imagine doing. Cruz is just a different political animal. Yeah, Ted Cruz is a Harvard-educated, right. well-spoken, calculated politician, and Donald Trump is more of a, a bull in a china cabinet. And and it seems that what you're saying is really no matter in which way I reframe the question, why did they support Donald Trump, it seems like you're going back to this note of expediency. It yeah. seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I hear you saying is is that they felt like their country, the way that they envisioned the country, which is a white Christian nation, Protestant Christian nation. And I don't think that when they say that or think that, that they mean a country that is devoid of other religions or a country that is devoid of other races or ethnicities. I think that they mean a country where white Protestant men are in control. And they felt like that was under siege. They felt like that control was slipping away, and the twice-elected Barack Obama was their proof. Because when, when you hear them talk about Mitt Romney, their disappointment with Mitt Romney seems to not just be he couldn't get the job done, but that it was his, his lack of toughness, his lack of bravado, that actually resulted in his failure. And so when they saw Trump, if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is, is they saw a man who could get in there. He was willing to fight the way that you had to fight in order to push back this liberal elite political establishment coalition of educated elites. He would fight the way you had to fight to push them back, and they were willing to write off any of his shortcomings in order to win that fight because at the end of the day, winning that fight was the most important thing in their eyes. Right, and so now what? President... Donald Trump has to do in a short order is demonstrate how he's going to do that and do it. If you take a look at his... Demonstrate how he's going to do what? Make America great again, (laughs) which is another way of saying make America white again. Make America 1950s again? Yes, of course. The idea would be that he's already starting to signal that in several ways. His first cabinet selection was Steve Bannon. He runs Breitbart News. He is a self-confessed alt-right member and he believes that Breitbart News is the publishing arm of the alt-right. So that first appointment was a critical one for Trump. 
it signaled to that base that he was very serious about doing leading this political religious agenda. Then if you look at who's named for cabinet posts at this point, they are highly uneducated, at least for their position. They're almost predominantly white males. And he's yet to select, except for Ben Carson, he's yet to select uh, a person of color. So, uh, Puffington Post yesterday ran a article about the pale male cabinet of Donald Trump, noticing that they're all, most are all, all white and all male and are unqualified. The most striking thing to me, apart from the fact that they're all so unqualified, is they've all in the past expressed a, a desire to eliminate the position they were appointed to yes. lead. Uh, the agency they were appointed to lead. I mean, Rick Perry's probably the most famous one of all of them just because he went out and said, you know, there are three branches of government I'm going to eliminate, commerce, education, and uh, uh, oops. Uh, <laughs> oops. And then, you know, ultimately came back and clarified his position that it was energy, and then lo and behold, Donald Trump comes out and says, well, guess what, bud? You're in charge of the energy administration. And that's a striking thing to me. When you look at the other positions, there's probably no better example than Rex Tillerson on this one. In my mind, a couple of things start to come together and it becomes clear to me that Donald Trump isn't interested in the job. Those two things are he's not taking the security briefings. He's not appointing people who are going to vent those agencies that they've been put in charge of. And when you look at Tillerson and then you read the history of the sanctions and ExxonMobil and Russia, and it starts to become obvious that ExxonMobil, Tillerson stand to benefit financially in ways that are inconceivable. And, and it's hard to imagine that Trump doesn't in some shape, way, form, or fashion see his family playing into that, that they're going to reap the financial benefits in some way. And that leads me to my final point, which is you're, you're familiar with Russell Moore? Yes. Yeah. He was very outspoken against Donald Trump. He was one of the few prominent evangelical ministers who just, from day one, was beating the never-Trump drum. And he rode Trump all the way to November the 8th. I heard Russell Moore talk about how he believes that Donald Trump and the evangelical support um, that he was able to muster is actually going to do more damage to the evangelical movement than the sex scandals of the televangelists did. When I think about that, like it's, it's hard to imagine them in the future being taken seriously when they start talking to America about family values. They start talking to us about the institution of marriage. It's hard to take them seriously when they supported Trump. But in what other ways could you foresee their support of Donald Trump is maybe advancing their agenda in the short term, getting the expedient solution that they were looking for, but in the long term, they've just drank hemlock. Well, it's it's whether Donald Trump can take short-term goals and turn them into long-term, lasting agenda items. And as you said earlier, he doesn't. It doesn't seem he wants to be president. He wants to be. He wants the accolades. He wants the attention. But is he willing to roll up his sleeves and do any work? If it's for the alt-right, if it's for the fundamentalists, if it's for anything other than Donald Trump, is he willing to do that? To the degree that he is and will be consistent, 
I think that the fundamentalists and Christian evangelicals that support him will be fine. But if he fails to deliver, I think you're right that this is going to be a one-term president and all the organizations and people and religious organizations that supported Trump are going to have to pay a price. When you talk about him turning you know, short-term agenda items into long-term agenda items, it's working off of the assumption that everybody who voted for Trump voted for his worldview. Well, they clearly did, whether it was implicit or explicit. But where I'm going with this is to say, when you consider particularly with the religious right, how much of that is rural, I think some of the conflict between the left and the right is really just, you could almost describe it as like some type of natural philosophical disagreement that emerges from the two totally different habitats that they that they live in. In a city where you're living next to black, white, Asian, Hispanic, who are Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, atheist, and Christian, you have to have a pluralistic, multicultural point of view in order just to make that work, to make life mm-hmm. not a living hell. And these become the principles that the liberal politics function on. But if you live in a rural area where your closest neighbor's half a mile away, you can have a much more individualistic point of view. But also what comes along with that rural life is chances of obtaining a higher education is lower. And I think, like we talked about earlier, the church, the evangelical church, has done a lot to sever people's trust in the education process and actually created this anti-intellectualism. So by the time we get to 2016 and the election in November between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I believe you had a lot of people who just had a distrust for, it's obvious we had a lot of people who had a distrust for reputable sources of information. It's not just science, it's also the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And I think that's an important point because I'm not just mm-hmm. talking about like what they would describe as liberal rags like the New York Times or the Washington Post, even though they have more Pulitzer Prizes than you could put in a pickup truck. They're also talking about the Wall Street Journal. It's a rag too. If it says anything bad about Donald Trump, it's a rag. It's not to be trusted. And they bought into a lot of these fake news articles. Mm-hmm. And these fake news articles propagated stories like Hillary Clinton and John Podesta running the child sex ring out of a pizzeria in D.C. They propagated stories like Hillary Clinton was killing FBI agents who were investigating her. All the way back to the aide who committed suicide years ago that mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton was accused of killing. And there was like five investigations and no evidence of wrongdoing at all. It was always declared a suicide. But when you live in rural America and you're watching network news, but you don't trust them, and then you read this news article online that says Hillary Clinton's killing her uh, political opponents, and then Donald Trump tells you this is all a conspiracy, that CNN's the Clinton News Network, it starts to sound true. Mm -hmm. And you hear that for 12, 14, 16 months, and then November comes around, and you feel like that this is a race between one man who might have his warts and all, and you might not like him or any of that, but on the other side is this person who is a murderer and has this huge political establishment involved with her in this cover-up. And I felt like in their mind, it was a no-brainer. Can't vote for the murderer. And so I don't know how many people actually endorse Donald Trump's agenda 
positively as much as it was that they were rejecting Hillary Clinton's. And so I wonder how many people actually be satisfied if Trump was to turn his short-term items into long-term agenda items. I think quite a few people in the United States would be very happy, uh, depending on how he does it, of course. They don't seem to be concerned that the Russian government played a role in getting Trump elected. They don't care about that. Trump tells them they don't care about that. <laughs> but I, I want to add something, which is oftentimes people think that most of rural America or fundamentalist America gets their news from Fox. I don't think that that may be true to an extent, but over the last 20, 30 years, AM radio channels have been bought up because they're cheap and they're listened to primarily by rural folk who will listen to AM talk shows. And You're talking about the Moon Graffons and right, Rush Limbaugh's. Right. And in many ways, that is a primary source of news. If you don't listen to AM radio, you probably don't, or you don't have to turn on AM. You don't even, that's not part of your worldview. But for many of these people, that is a primary source of, of not only information, but a reaffirmation of their values. And I think that Trump knew that. Yeah, so at night when they get home and they're sitting down to have dinner, they might have Fox News on in the background, but during the day while they're out working, they got the AM dial turned up and they're listening to Hannity or they're listening to Rush Limbaugh, which, to be honest, I, I mean, Rush Limbaugh is maybe just one tick behind Alex Jones. I mean, some of the wild shit that comes out of his mouth. and, and But... To your point, if you're buying what they're saying, then come November, I mean, if me and you agreed, if me and you believed what Rush Limbaugh was saying, then we would have voted for Donald Trump. We wouldn't yeah. have voted for Hillary Clinton either. And so it does seem to go back to, in a lot of ways, the Scopes Monkey Trial. Yeah. And it all goes back to the beginning of that anti-intellectualism. Because on all accounts, if you look at the Founding Fathers, not a single one of them could have gotten elected in this environment. Not no. every one of them were intellectual to the core and not one of them would have passed out that type of religious rhetoric. Most of them were deists. Yeah. So they weren't interested in founding a Christian nation. They wanted to do exactly the opposite. So they put explicitly separation of church and state. And they meant it. They didn't want what had it happened in England, which is everybody by default, whether you liked it or not, was a member of the Church of England. And the Church of England recognized the, the divine authority of the monarch. They didn't want that. So that what they did was intentionally create a constitution that said so. So final question. If the likes of Jefferson and Hamilton and Washington and Adams and none of these people endorse this notion of, they clearly endorse on some level the notion of a white man. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, and they clearly endorsed the notion of a, a male America. But they didn't endorse the notion of a Christian America. And so when we're talking about returning to or make America great again, when we talk about the again for the religious right, is it an actual era? Is it an actual time in American history that they're referring to? Or is it some myth of the noble savage era, this kind of returning to Eden idea of something right. that never existed? It's like the religious scholar Eliade 
wrote about the mythic return, that people are looking to go back to a more pristine, a more perfected time. And for fundamentalists, that perfected time is a time that is embedded within a literal interpretation of Scripture. So it's, it's going back to a time where everybody would be that kind of individual and live in that kind of world. Has it existed? No, probably not. Will we ever get back there? No, because you, it's a mythic turn. It's not a turn in reality. So do I think that Trump is going to be able to pull this off? Ultimately, no. Because I don't know how you make that myth a, a lived yeah. reality for an entire nation. And you realize that, again... Is it, at least for the religious right, is stemming from a literal reading of Scripture. And then Trump starts to realize that the standard he has to live up to is getting it back to when people walked on water and healed the sick with their hand or rose from the dead or ascended into the clouds. Then, yeah, that becomes a pretty tall order. So <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. I enjoyed the conversation. Great. I do too. Thanks. Thanks.